All right. The love is flowing in the house, uh, in the family room here. Uh, and again, I just want to say to you guys, you know, Antioch College Station, you guys are family. Uh, we're all part of one big family. I'm so grateful for Tyler and Ashley, your leadership team here. They truly love you and serve you out of a pure desire to see Jesus glorified and, and his kingdom move forward. So again, as, as he said, I'm the uh, leader, I guess. Uh, not really. I'm <laughs> one of the leaders uh, of the Antioch movement. And just for a little uh, idea of what's going on uh, in our nation, we just started our 40th U.S. church plant. Uh, so uh, we are committed to reaching our nation uh, like never before. And we now have 85 works in 43 different nations. So when you're a part of the Antioch movement, you're a part of your local community, you're a part of being part of this family, but that extends around the world. And our, our prayer and our hope is that in these coming days, there's nowhere you can go on planet Earth that there's not an Antioch family or friend uh, that you can partner with for the glory of Jesus. So that's a little context. All right. So here we go. Um, in 2014, actually, Tyler was with me in Irkutsk, Russia, where we were celebrating 20 years of the church being planted there. And um, the leaders of the churches were all together and their uh, people. And they surprised me on the second night. They came up and, and gave me this, this uh, key. Uh, it's, it's what they call a key to the city of Irkutsk, Russia. And um, they, they came and gave it to me. <coughs> Excuse me. And they said, hey, we talked to the city leaders to get one of these keys, and we wanted to give it to you because you came and opened the keys to our hearts through giving us Jesus. And out of that, God's given us a key to open the hearts of this city. And the reason that the city leaders were so willing to give this key away, as they do multiple to multiple people, is because um, out of the work of our churches there, they began to reach out to the addicts of the city. Uh, they saw many of them come to Jesus, their families transform. But the most dynamic thing was they had five verified healings, medically verified healings of people being healed of AIDS uh, completely. And it was on the front page of the newspaper, and they've been big, uh, big advocates and salt and light in the city. And that's what happens when the kingdom of God comes. God touches a heart, then he uses us to unlock other hearts, and then he brings restoration beyond what we could even ask or think. And so this morning, as I share, I want you to know God's giving out keys. Look at it. God's giving out keys this morning. And the Bible is called the keys of the kingdom. He gives keys of the kingdom to open our hearts and open doors because every person in this room matters and every person in this room not only matters to Jesus, but God has a space and a place for you on planet Earth to turn the key of his kingdom and to open another heart. Uh, and he's going to do that this morning. I want to start with a familiar passage of scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. Just for context, as that scripture comes up on the screen, this is the children of Israel are in Babylon. So the children of Israel, they're supposed to be this awesome nation. They're supposed to be living for God. They've got God leading them, wanting uh, to display his glory through this people. And these guys have sinned, like sin like crazy. And their sin has got them in bondage from the world. And their rightful place in the earth for them to be kings and princes and to display the glory of God is gone. They're now ruled by the world. They're ruled by the world leaders. They're in bondage because of their own sin. Does that sound familiar? 
This people of God have a great call. They are the display of God's glory, and they have abdicated that for their own sin. And in the midst of it, here they are in captivity. They're in bondage again. They're being ruled by an uh, evil empire. And in the midst of it, God sends the prophet and declares to them in the middle of their hopelessness, in the middle of nowhere to turn, in the middle of thinking their destiny's gone, and the prophet declares, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that amazing? In the middle of their hopelessness, the prophet comes and declares, my plans are good, they've always been good. And even though you've gotten yourself into this, and even it's your own sin and your own rebellion, even against me, my plans are still good because I can't be anything but myself. I'm pursuing you. I'm calling you again into the destiny you were created for. No matter how sin has devastated you, there is still hope because I'm still in control. And then those next two verses is the key because he invites them into partnership. And he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. God's plans are good They're for, for, uh, uh, to redemption for all things. But he says, now come and pray to me, and then I'll listen to you. And then seek me and find me when you search for me, not with some of your heart, but with all of your heart. Yeah. In the first part of 14, it says, and I will be found by you. Isn't that beautiful? We got a God who cares, a God who's always pursuing, a God who's always wooing, whose God has created you for greatness in the right sense of that word, to serve and to display his glory. And he says, now listen, in the midst of your bondage, wherever you are, I'm calling you back. So come. So come and respond to me. And what I want to do this morning is unpack what I call four keys to revival, to coming back to God. Revival kind of has two definitions. Revival for the people of God is the coming back to the way we were intended to be. It's literally what you see in the Bible. What the New Testament church is, we're coming back to you, God. We're coming wholeheartedly back to you. We want to be revived. We want to be renewed in that clarity of what you've created us to be. It also means for those who don't know Jesus, it's what's called the awakening of the masses, that we become so alive in God that everywhere we go, people see God on display. And you know, in the midst of a, our broken culture, I, I had some friends in New York City, and they say, it's easy to witness these days. We don't complain and we don't cuss. And they say, what kind of a person are you? And they say, they, it's easy to share the gospel. The bar's kind of low these days. But if you come in lit up with Jesus, with a clarity and a testimony of his transformation, I promise you the world will stand in awe because they are looking for the same thing. So here we go. What are, what are some of those keys to the kingdom for your personal revival, keys to the kingdom to get into that future and hope that he has for us? So number one comes out of a Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I've got to trust God in who he says he is. For uh, he who comes to God must believe that he is who he says he is. You see, the, the, the beginning of the change of our heart is when we begin to look at the scriptures and say, God, who do you say you are? And I want to agree with that. This morning, I, I was in Isaiah 40. Uh, at 5.30 this morning, and I was looking over the bigness of God, the greatness of God, the shepherding of God, the care of God, and I just got so excited. I thought, yes, God, you're in control of the world. Yes, God, you care. 
carry us like a shepherd carries his lambs in his arms. God, do you carry? You're wonderful. You're amazing. And I wrote on a little note for Laura, Isaiah 40, verse 11, you're being cared today. That's my wife, by the way. I wrote a little note on her. And I said, yes, if we'll, we'll lock into this today, we're going to have hope. We're going to have life. and We're going to have strength. For the last 30 years, I've started my days looking at the bigness of God the Father, looking at Jesus, looking at the Holy Spirit, because by knowing God, my heart comes alive. And your heart doesn't come alive apart from him. I was um, in Arkansas on vacation with my uh, family. Several years ago, all our kids were smaller at the time. And my uh, wife uh, said, hey, it was Father's Day weekend. And so Laura said, hey, I want to give you a a Father's Day gift. We're going to let you go play golf by yourself. I want you to know I love my kids. I love them so much that I needed to go by myself. Yes. <laughs> Jesus would pull away. Yes. I needed to pull away uh, just for a little bit. So, uh, so I, of course, I didn't know anybody. Uh, so I go to the golf course, and they said, hey, would you mind playing with this guy who plays every day? His name's Truman. He's a nice guy. And, and I said, sure. So the guy's uh, 75 years old, introduces himself. And as is my custom, eventually I just ask him, hey, Truman, anybody ever told you about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? So uh, it must have been about the third hole. And he stops, and we're, we're on the tee box, and we, we were there for about 20 minutes. Because he stopped and he said, oh, I know Jesus. Can I tell you my story? And I said, sure, tell me your story. And he said, I grew up around the things of God, but I wanted nothing to do with God. It was legalism. People in church were mean, he said, and they weren't any fun either. And so he said, I didn't want anything to do with it. And he said, so I kind of went my own way as a teenager, as a young adult. He said, I'm on my second marriage, and my sister would always pray for me and say, you need Jesus, Truman. You need to come to Jesus. He, he loves you. He cares for you. But he said, I got things to do. I got other interests, and, and that is not what I want to do. And he said, then all of a sudden, at 38 years old, my sister dies. She dies suddenly. And I thought, what kind of a God is this? My sister loved you. She was holy. Me? I should have died, but not her. He said she was the most precious thing in my life. She loved me so completely, so thoroughly. Why would she die? He said, I go to the funeral, and I'm so mad at God and at the world, and I'm driving back at night on the back roads. I'd been drinking a little bit, and I'm, I'm just frustrated. God, what's the deal? And he said, now, son, I don't know if you believe this, but I'm going to tell you what happened. I said, try me out, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, I have an open vision. So much so I had to pull over to the side of the road. And he said, and in this open vision, I'm standing on a stage in a church preaching. And I'm telling the crowd, there's only four words you need to know. And he's saying, What? And he said, I'm, so I'm, I'm hearing myself. There's only four words you need to know. God has four words for you today that you need to know. And he's sitting there. I'm sitting there in this vision saying, tell me the four words. I'm telling myself. He said, it's a very weird experience. And I'm saying, tell me the four words that God wants me to know. And then all of a sudden he said, I say from the stage, God wants you to know I am with you. There's only four words you need to know. I am with you. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized that the number one way that Jesus revealed himself is Emmanuel. God with us. 
It's what my sister was trying to tell me all my life. It's what Jesus wanted for me all my life. And he said, in that moment, I just realized, oh my goodness, I've tried everything and everybody, but Jesus, I repented of my sin. I cry out, oh Jesus, would you come be with me? And he came. And he said, in that moment, I was just so caught up. And he said, son, again, I got to tell you what happened next. You may not believe me, but I was there. He said, I looked out my windshield into the night sky just with such gratitude. And he said, I see blazing fire in the sky and those words, I am with you. And I'm just caught up in this fire in the sky where God's declaring his glory. And he said, then the fire fades and the words fade away. He said, then I start crying again. And I'm saying, oh God, I want to see these words. I want to see them all the time. He said, it seemed to me that Jesus spoke to me so clearly I am with you always, Truman. Whether you can see it or not, I am with you. I've sent my spirit so that you know that I am with you always. Can I just say the number one motivation for seeking God, the number one motivation on this earth is to know him, to be with him, to enjoy him, to engage him. I look at God the Father and I see the loving care of God. I look at Jesus and I see the sacrifice, the only way out from guilt and shame. In the Old Testament, they would, uh, the, the priests would put their hands on the head of the sheep, the lamb, the spotless lamb. They would put their hands on him to impart the sins of the people onto the sacrifice. Then they would sacrifice the sheep, blood would be shed, and it would allow them to enter into the courts of praise and the courts of God. And the the prophet uh, John said this when he saw Jesus for the first time, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that sacrifice that we lean into, and he takes our sin upon himself because we cannot get rid of it on our own. It is never about religion and perfection because there is no way for you to be good enough, but there is one alone who stands above all of the earth, Jesus himself, who is good enough, who is righteous, and when we lean into him and give him our sin, he consumes it with his sacrifice. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, you have hope always. And that's why I look at the scriptures about his death, burial, and resurrection always because I want my heart to be attached to him. I want to lean into him. So we've got key one. I got to see God for who he is, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is with us. Do you know that if you know Jesus, if you have trusted in him alone, he's with you by his spirit. Key number two for personal revival, for revival in your family, your community, this city, for what God's wanting to do our nation, it's not only the acknowledgement of who God is, but it's also the prayers of the saints and the partnership with God for what he wants to do. There's this great story in Luke chapter 11. And in this story, this guy has a guest uh, coming over and he has to have some bread for him in the morning. And so he goes over to his friend's house at midnight to tell the the guy that he needs to borrow some bread because he's got a guest. And the guy's in bed already, and he's got everything settled, and he's like, I'm not coming down there. But the guy just keeps banging on the door and says, I know you're in there. I know you're in there, and you got bread already set up for tomorrow. You got my bread, man. I'm going to keep bugging you until you get out of bed. 
And it says, not because he's his friend, not because he has what is needed, but because the guy's bugging him, he opens the door and gives him the bread. And then Jesus goes on to say, ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. He gives us permission to bug him incessantly, consistently, until that door is opened. He invites us to come and to keep knocking and to keep asking. When I was a, a, a kid, I was a really unsaved kid. And so we did a lot of really unsaved things. Um, one of those uh, was uh, every New Year's Eve, our parents would go to parties, and so they would kind of leave us to ourselves. And we were junior hires at the time, and so our ritual was to line up behind this wall and water balloon cars as they came by, and then watch them, and we had our hiding places to watch them run in circles trying to find out what just happened to them. So um, anyway, in the midst of this uh, water ballooning thing, we hit the car of some teenagers who were like 17 and 18 years old. They were kind of like the big brothers of our friends. And... Um, so they were cursing, and they were looking everywhere for us, and we were, it was even more fun because we, they were teenagers, right, and we got them, right? So, but they were a little smarter than we were, and so what they had decided to do was they said, let's wait about 30 minutes. Let's come back around again because I know these guys are going to do it again, and we'll be ready for them. So they come around again. We bomb them, and they stop immediately, and they start after us, right? So now we're running as fast as we can. We only had about 100 yards head start. So a couple blocks up the road, there was a house of a friend. Uh, um, his dad was a doctor. We call him Dr. B. And uh, their light was on. And so we're like, Dr. B's house, go to Dr. B's house. So we run, and we are banging on the door. And these guys are pulling up in their car now because the, the other ones were following them, and the ones are running. And in, in southeast Texas, if they caught us, it was over, right? We, <laughs> they beat us up ritually uh, for fun. So... Uh, so here we were, the beating was about to happen. We are banging on the door, just desperate to get in the house. Dr. B turned like, what's going on, boys? Dr. B, they're chasing us. These bad guys are trying to get us. Help us. He opens the door. We all kind of tumble into the foyer and all that stuff. About those times these teenagers were, those guys did this, this, and this. Dr. B said, what's going on, boys? Nothing. We didn't do anything. These guys are chasing us. We don't know why. They would have hurt us. And he said, you boys better get out of here. I'm going to call the cops. We said, yes, sir. Go get them. <laughs> So they left. He opened the door <laughs> because we knew that he had the help on the other side and we knew that we had to get there. Prayer is like that. God, you have the resources. God, you are a rescue. I'm going to keep coming until you open the door. I've got to know. Now let me pause for a moment and say this. If I was to look at my prayer life over the last 20 or 30 years, I would say about 80% of my prayers have been answered by seeking, by knocking, by trying to align my life with God. I would say that other 20% ranges from my prayers weren't answered like I wanted. My prayers were answered in a way that I did not desire or they weren't answered at all. So I've got to be okay with answered prayers, kind of answered in the wrong way, according to me, and what I call the mystery bucket. If you're not okay with mystery, you'll quit praying eventually. Yeah. 
What I mean by that is this. I refuse to allow the 80% of good to cloud the 20% of mystery or disappointment. Now, the problem with that 20% is that it can be really painful. I believed for a breakthrough for a child, and they died. I believed for a breakthrough for a friend, and they never came back. The, the, the will of man is still in play here. We live in a fallen world. There's things that happen. We create environments of people to respond. We cannot control the will of man. But in the end, I refuse to allow the 80% of good, the 80% of what I do know about God to cloud the 20% of what I do not know about God. Do not allow the cloud of disappointment to be like an evil vine to get into the celebration of the victory of God that he has for you. Everybody is called to pray, contend, and seek God, to find what is God's will in his word, to use that as your underpinning, and to contend until you see the breakthrough. When we, um, we had three kids, and then we had uh, a couple, of, we had a, uh, one major miscarriage, uh, two and a half months in, and we thought that we were done with having kids. And, um, but uh, Laura got pregnant again, and we were so excited. And um, uh, several months into it, about five months in, they did the first ultrasound. And the doctor, who was a friend of ours, came in. She looked very disturbed. And we thought, what's the problem? What's going on? And, and she said, I'm so sorry, you guys. She showed us this x-ray and said, he has 150 cysts on his brain. And she said, I, I don't know what to say other than your best outcome is a Down syndrome experience and then all kinds of other things, even if he lives. And she said, what do you guys want to do? Now, um, she gave us the option of abortion. We said, absolutely not, not even a discussion. She said, well, you know, there's some things that they can check on along the way to get you prepared for what it is. And we said, well, you know, after we prayed about it, we said, no, we're just going to pray. We're just, we're just going to put our lives in the hands of God. Now, let me pause and say this. If this little boy would have ended up with Down syndrome, he would have been our little boy and would have been just as beautiful as if he didn't. If we would have gone through that process and lovingly prayed and done all we know to do, and the outcome was a stillbirth, we still would have said, God, it was a privilege to carry your child. We were prepared for all the outcomes because we don't control outcomes. But we wanted to create an environment of the grace of God that would so saturate that process that whatever came what may, we could trust God on the other side of it. So we were gone for uh, several months. We, we didn't do a sonogram. We didn't do anything. The day of the birth came. And when I say didn't do anything, we were praying, we were seeking God, we were just saying, God, we trust you with our lives. And I remember the, 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 the birth and, and that whole deal about when, when the child came into the world and you're just like, okay, did, looking at him, is he okay? Is everything all right? And so on and so forth. And they immediately whisked him away because of the complications and they checked everything about two hours where we're just there. We have worship music going and we're just worshiping, right? Because we'd already met with God. And whatever the results were, here we are. The doctor walks in, tears in her eyes, and she says, he's perfect. He's beautiful. He's perfect. We rejoiced in God, but I do want to say we were prepared to rejoice in God either way. When you contend for those things that are impossible, you have to be willing to go there all the way through. You will see more victory than defeat. You will learn every time you go for it but don't ever quit knocking. 
Don't ever quit seeking and don't ever quit asking because at the very end, friendship with God will be what remains no matter what the outcome of your prayers. Hey, one other thing I want to say about prayer before I go on to key number three, and that is this. I have a, a friend, a doctor friend who... Um, uh, at one time was running a church of 2,500 people, a school of 1,000 students, and still working four days a week as a physician. Pretty high-capacity guy. Great staff, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I remember asking him, Dr. Milley, how did you do all this stuff? And he said, when I was in med school and life was really pressured and people were saying, you can't do the church thing in med school too. He said, I, I had to figure out a way to find God in the midst of it. So I said, God, give me wisdom. And he said, what I did was I would tithe the amount of time that I would go to class and study. I would tithe the first fruits of my day to the Lord. So if it was 10 hour a day, I'd give the first hour to the Lord. If it was going to be a 12 hour a day, I'd give one hour, 12 minutes uh, and so on and so forth. He said, whatever it was, I would just kind of size up the day and I would tie the first fruits to the Lord. God would always meet with me. It would solidify me and get his hand involved in everything. He said, who knows what all God did on my behalf that I was not aware of because I trusted him by faith to give the first fruits of my day to him. Wherever you are, you can trust God in prayer, not just for the huge things, but for your daily bread, as the scripture says, coming day by day. Keys, keys to revival. See God for who he is. Be a man or a woman of prayer, contending personally, corporately, etc. Third key, be a person of confession and repentance. Again, hopefully a common passage, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, that word confess means agree with God, to see things the way God sees things. When we confess, God, this is who you are, this is who I'm not, I just want to agree with that. It releases the power of darkness, not just when we confess it to God, but when we confess to one another, the scripture says, we'll be healed. Um, we had a, 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 about a year-long deal at one of our houses where what I call the roach plague. And um, I mean, literally, we had roaches all over our house. And my wife keeps a clean house. We keep a clean house. It wasn't for that reason. It was just something was going on, right? And what would happen in the morning or in the night, it was dark. You walk in the kitchen, you'd turn on the lights, and boom, you know, roaches would run everywhere. Just heading for the hills underneath the cabinets and everything else. And of course, it got to where you know, you'd get that flash water, just whoa, 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 try to catch them, but you wouldn't get them all. And... <clears throat> Like the roaches in the kitchen, when we confess our sins to God, and especially when we confess our sins to one another, darkness has to flee. It, it, it can't dwell with light. But when we keep darkness hidden, there is a roach epidemic in our souls. There's stuff running around that is so nasty that it's hurting us and going to hurt other people. When we confess our sins, agree with God, when we confess our sins to one another, it brings the light on and it sets us free. But it's not just confession because confession is just agreement. It's repentance. It's the turning back to God and his ways that cause the lasting change. The whole Antioch movement, what we do around the world, has been ignited through visitations of God along the way. One of the earlier uh, moves of God we had was 
in the early 1990s. Laura and I were college pastors. Actually, Kevin was there with us in those days. And, and we were having a leaders meeting one afternoon on, on a Sunday with a college leaders. And um, this uh, young lady stands up and says, hey, can I share a scripture? And of course, you know. Uh, we probably had about 60 people there that day. And she shared this scripture uh, out of Hosea. And she said, uh, I believe the Lord's saying that uh, out of this scripture that our love has been like the dew of the ground. It rises quickly and fades just as quickly. And then she prays, Jesus, forgive us for not loving you. For not loving you the way you need to be loved. And she starts crying. Well, you know, it's kind of one of those things when somebody's getting authentic with God, then it starts affecting the rest of us, right? There's a few tears being shed. Then a girl comes up to me, another college student. She says, I have to tell the group something. She said, I had an abortion as a teenager. I've never told anyone. I have to tell them. I've got to get free. And I said, well, of course, you know, this is a safe environment. She shares. And then wailing starts happening. Because I had two or three other girls had that same experience. They came and shared it. Then guys began to share uh, sexual sin. And then people began to share the brokenness in their lives. This went on for hours. And then in the following weeks, we literally, every time we would gather, like a, a corporate setting like this, as we had our college gatherings, there would be lines as far back from here to the door for every one of our prayer team. And people would start with this thing. I've never told anyone this before. And the Spirit of God would come and they would just get on their knees and weep before God. We had hundreds of people get free like never before in their lives because they not only confessed, but then they wanted to live a different way. And the power of that change is how we started everything we do around the world because people in, that, in those days were the ones that heard the call to go to the Middle East, to go to North Korea, to sacrifice their lives for one another, to do whatever it took because they had been so touched and captured by the love of Jesus and they had so been authentic and vulnerable with their lives, they're willing to do anything for him. That's the beauty of confession and repentance. And it's the invitation as always, for all of us. You know, often we're afraid. What if somebody really knew? You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of living in the dark. I'm afraid of darkness more than I am my own reputation or my own deal. I can't allow darkness to rule my life. And all the more, wherever you are, I want you to know this is not a perfect place, but it is a safe place to be honest yeah. with God and one another. And when you are, things begin to change. I can't tell you how many people have come through and been honest with confessing their sins and repenting, and it started affecting their families, their mothers, their brothers, their sisters, whole communities, whole cities. It just takes one revival. It takes one person turning back to God, one person getting honest and sincere. It, it touches everything and everywhere that you go. Who knows, your one confession, your one repentance may be a catalyst to touch generations. Though there are many keys, one last key is obedience. Hopefully it's obvious through all of this already. We see God for who he is. We seek him. We pray. We come to him. We partner. We obey. We confess. We repent. But obedience, obedience, there's a little scripture that says to obey is better than sacrifice. And what that means is I don't even know what's good for me even when I want to be all that God wants me to be. <laughs> what I do know is I can simply do the next thing that God's saying to do. And if I do that, it creates a tapestry 
of his grace. Um, many years ago, when we were just getting started, um, we had sold everything we had, basically. We'd moved into the inner city, and we were just about to start the training school, much like your Antioch Discipleship School here. We were about to start the first school, and we're, I'm driving down the highway just saying, God, what are you doing with us? We've given everything. We're, uh, you know, am I a fool for taking this step of faith, being so uh, honest with the garbage of my life, being whole, wholeheartedly in? I mean, what, what are you doing with us? And it seemed to me that God spoke as clearly as I've ever heard him speak, and he simply said, if you'll do the next thing I'm telling you to do, you'll be in the middle of the greatest revival this world's ever seen. If you'll just simply always do the next thing I'm telling you to do. I was so overcome with the presence of God and the voice of God, I pulled over on the side of the highway and just came undone, wept uncontrollably, because I said, God, that's all I want. You know, here it is 32 years later from that experience, and I have had many experiences in the last few months where I'm sitting in a situation and God's saying, this is that, that we're in the middle, you're in the middle. Didn't say anybody ever know I was a leader or not, or, but, but we get to be in the middle. And, and I want to say to the Antioch community, we're in the middle. We just, every obedience puts us right in the middle. Every time we say yes to Jesus, puts us right in the middle of what God's about to do. And I believe with all my heart, in the next 18 months in America, we are in one of those crucible moments where God is calling us, where God is calling us back as the people of God, and he's wanting to move like never before. And so everywhere I go, I'm teaching these principles to get people alive and alert and to believe again and to trust again, to turn our nation back. But it's going to be one person at a time, one move of God at a time. And when we do that, we create a roadway for his power and his grace. Hey, one last story before we end. There was a moment in the late 1960s, early 1970s, where in America, I, I believe that you know, people thought, have we lost it? Are, we, are things falling apart? Every institution was being challenged. Drugs were rampant on college campuses. There was rebellion everywhere. People were losing their kids to all this stuff. Like, where are we going? What's happening to America? Politically, things were up, people. And in 1970, and this happened in many locations, there was a group of students at Asbury College in Kentucky uh, who were asking the question, what would it look like if God moved powerfully? And they basically said, well, well, let's go on a 30-day experiment. Let's agree every morning we're all going to meet, read the word, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, and we're going to obey whatever God says to do. We're going to do it for 30 days. And then every night we'll get together and we'll say, what did God do today? Are we following what he's put in our hearts to do? And we're going to pray again. So on day 29 of this experiment, this journey, they felt together, God's going to move tomorrow. I wonder where it's going to be. And then they, they all knew they had chapel the next day at this particular college. They had a chapel service. And at chapel, one of the students asked one of the professors who was leading, could I share a testimony of what God's doing in our lives? And he got up and shared how God was dealing with him and some sins that he wanted to confess and he needed to repent of. And it began a move of God. And then one person after another, after another, after another. It would go on all day and into the night. The president of the college was uh, about five hours away at a, a speaking event, and the vice president of the college called him and said, Dr. Kinlaw, we, we have a problem on campus. And he's thinking, oh, no, has there been an outbreak of rebellion? Was a student killed? Did something happen? Or what, what happened? He said, no, no sir, uh, chapel has not ended. 
Started at 10 that morning. It's 10 o'clock at night. He said, excuse me? He said, chapel has not ended. And he said, what do you mean hasn't ended? He said, students are confessing their sins, sharing their testimony, and God is here. When Dr. Kenlaw tells the story, he said, I'm in that phone booth in Toronto, Canada, and he said, the presence of God fell. I realized God is visiting us. He said he got the plane in the car, got down as fast as he could. He gets there at 2 in the morning. He said he walked into the back, and he said it was so holy. He just said, I got to sit in the back. I can't go to the front. And he said a young lady came up to him in, in tears and said, Dr. Kinlaw, I need you to help me. He could tell she was desperate and distraught, so he said, well, let's pull out over to a side area, side room. They pulled over to a side room, and she said, Dr. Kinlaw, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. All my life, I've just lied. I don't know when I'm telling the truth and when I'm telling a lie, and I don't know what to do. I'm a liar. Dr. Kinlaw, I'm a liar. What do I do? And he said he was just taken up with emotion. He said, I didn't know what to say. I said, God, what do I say? He said, I tell her, so I don't know what to do, but I, I know you can go back to the last person you lied to and you can tell them the truth. Just go back to the next person, and then when you've done that, go to the next person. Just, just go do what God would want you to do. He said the revival went on. It went on days and days and days. Chapel never ended for days, 24 hours a day. People came from all over the world. People then went all over America telling of the glory of God that was visiting this place. But he said a couple days after that situation, that girl comes up to him, this sophomore in college, and he said, she's glowing. I'd never seen her more beautiful in my life, a more beautiful young lady. I said, you're beautiful. You're glowing. What's happened to you? And she said, I just finished talking to the 34th person and telling the truth. And she said, I'm free. I'm free. I'm no longer a liar. Whew. He said, they just wept together. And said, God has the power to set people free who simply obey the next thing he's saying to do. Yeah. Don't know where you are today in your personal life. Not sure exactly where the community is at large here. But what I do know is the invitations being given for you to be free. Yeah. For you to experience that nearness, that sweetness of God that comes by the simple obedience of the heart that wants him. So let's stand together. Now, as we stand, can I just keep everybody's attention just for a few moments? And I just have to be honest with you, this is the most important time of the morning. The worship was rich. Hopefully the word of God stirred your heart. But your response to the word is what determines your destiny. Yeah. Not even the richness of the word or worship. It's now... Our response is the determiner. So this moment matters. So if our prayer teams can come to the front, and wherever you are today, let me encourage you to respond to what God's speaking to you. It can be right there in your seat. Lord, I just want to respond to that. I, I need to confess to you, or God, I, I want to make this right, or I know you've spoken to me to do this and so, and I'm, I'm committed to do that. But I also find that for most of us, we need to make a step Forward. The reason we do these quote-unquote altar calls 
is not to embarrass anyone or to prove anything or anything at all. It's not for us. It's, it's for you. It's for all of us, actually, because there's something about stepping out of where you are that allows the back of the enemy's anxiety and fear over you break. I always say, don't let passivity or pride keep you from what God has for you. If you need help this morning, and it may not be related to the message at all, I, you may come in here with a burden for a family member or a friend. It may be for a, you need a healing, you need a breakthrough. There's a fear that just seems out of control, a depression. Whatever it is, don't walk out of here with the burden you walked in with. And maybe something stirred you today and you just need to talk to somebody and pray with somebody. Or maybe you just need to come and get on your knees before God and you don't need to talk to anybody, but you, you need to make a step to break the back of the bondage that's got you. God has come to set us free. And I'm going to pray, and then you come, and you respond. Just respond to Jesus. Don't let anybody or anything keep you from the help that God has for you this morning. You do not have to come perfect. Actually, it never works if you do. You come imperfect to meet the perfect one. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray, would you release your spirit now in response to your word? Would you draw us into your presence? And Lord, I pray that guilt and shame would fall. I pray that fear would dissipate. I pray, Lord, you would lift oppression and depression according to your word. And I pray that you would set men and women free, that something would happen in this moment that would ignite the life of Jesus to be made manifest. Oh, Spirit of God, draw us, we pray.